We are in 1 John still. We're in our second cycle through his topics that he brings of life, light, and love. And as you've noticed the last couple of weeks, he's really been honing in on love. But this second cycle has taught us more about our ability to do these things. Because of our position in him and because of our fellowship with him, we actually have the ability to do his will. This is something very unique, something that we cannot do in our flesh. And so this is our last week in these anointing, abiding, and acting verses. We'll move into faith, fellowship, and eternity after that. And this morning's verses are a conclusion for the whole first three chapters. John has a major division in his book here where he's wrapping up the doctrinal section and he's really going to drive it home in the next two chapters. And so the summary that he gives us is one about abiding in him and having assurance or confidence before him. The main idea this morning, usually I put it in my own words, but I thought this was so succinct that I thought I would quote Robert Yarbrough, who's the uh, dean of Dallas Seminary, and he wrote an excellent commentary on 1 John. He says about this section that despite the human propensity to fall short of the summons of godly love, that means despite the fact that we always come short of the commands that we've been given, there can be comfort and confidence in the knowledge of God through faith in Christ and love for one another. Such assurance facilitated by divine commandments that make abiding in Christ possible is enabled by God's Spirit. We come short, but God's Spirit makes perfect. The effort, the intention behind it, and he actually makes it possible to do things that in our flesh we could never do. And that's important because where we left off last week, John had given us a very, very tall order. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's asking the maximum. That's asking the most that you could possibly give. That's being the most self-sacrificial and most concerned with others that we could possibly muster. And he brings it down to home, something that we might actually have the opportunity to do because most of us won't have the opportunity to die for someone else. He says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? How is the love of God working in that person to mature them and grow them and have fellowship and intimacy with them if the love of God isn't demonstrated in them? If the love of God actually isn't working to produce the love of God coming through them? So he says, little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. The next few verses help us deal with this tall order. One that most of us, if we were truly honest with ourselves, realize we've never completely done this. We've never hardly even come close to this. That we can have the intention of doing that, even our intentions sometimes make us second guess ourselves. Was my intention really good? Was my intention really honest? Did I really want to help them or did I want to be the one who helped them? Did I really want to love that person or be seen as the one who loved that person? Our conscience is not a good meter, but God will judge perfectly. And so in dealing with assurance, we have to deal with the topic of the conscience or the heart, the way we think and the way we talk to ourselves about who we are. 
This needs to be informed not by our emotions, but by God's word. And so in dealing then with assurance, we look at obedience, because this is where the rubber meets the road. Do the actions match the commandment? John says, we will know by this, that we are of the truth. Well, what is by this? By what? By obeying the command that had just come before. Now, it's a mitigated command. It's, it's not actually in the imperative tense, which means it's not like we would say, do this, do that. But it's a Greek hortatory subjunctive. This is basically the same thing. There is no syntactical difference between this and a command. The only difference is you can't include yourself, first person, in a command. We get around this in English by using this verb, let, let us. This includes you in that command. So John is not letting himself off and saying, everyone else, you just need to do this. He's used a construction that allows him to also fall under this command. Let us love not with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And with a command, there is the requirement of an act of volition, either positive or negative. We have to choose to obey or not to obey. The choice of obedience or disobedience. And all commands then are conditional. And in a conditional construction, there's always the ability to disobey. We will know by this then, this is our obedience. This is the apodosis to the prodosis, which is the command. An apodosis is the conclusion. What will happen? We will know. If we are obedient, we will, future tense, have this confirmation or this assurance. If we see obedience working out in our lives, we should have confidence from that. In other words, we will know if we love indeed and in truth that we are of the truth. You cannot love indeed and in truth if you are not of the truth. And so here's John's pattern that he's giving us. Obedience leads to knowledge. Knowledge about who you are and what you are. But what happens if we are not obedient? Or if we wonder if our obedience was actually obedience or self-serving? John tells us to rest assured, and he's going to tell us to just do it. Our conscience might wonder, like, are we actually praying to get something from God, or are we praying for his will to be done? If we have a guilty conscience, it might tell us, well, then stop praying. This is never the answer. If we are serving someone else, and our wonder is, well, perhaps I'm serving them for self-serving reasons. Well, the flesh might tell us then, well, then stop serving others. You wouldn't want to do that with a bad conscience. This is not the answer. So John tells us how we can get that assurance. He says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. Obedience leads to knowledge and knowledge leads to that assurance. This gets to the heart of a very important issue, the difference between security, eternal security, and assurance, 
the way we view our eternal security or the way we understand our eternal security. You see, these are different things. The one leads to the other. Our security is a fact of salvation. Once we have shifted our trust from ourselves to Christ, he holds us secure. He holds us firm and God the Father holds us in him. And the Spirit has been given to us as a seal for the day of redemption. This is a fact. It's not an experience. It's not something we feel. It's not something we learn through obeying him. It's something that gives us the ability to obey him. Our security is an undiminishable fact. Our assurance, however, is an experience of fellowship. Some days we just don't feel secure. This doesn't mean we are less secure. It means we don't fully understand it. It means our actions aren't aligning with the truth of who we are. And therefore the answer is not, we're not saved, we need to get saved, but we are saved, we need to act saved. We need to rely on those riches of grace that have been available to us since the day we believed. Because security, unlike assurance, is based on Christ's obedience. It was Christ's obedience to go to the cross that purchased for us salvation by which we can be eternally secure. Assurance, on the other hand, is based on my obedience and my knowledge of security. These two elements work together to convince my heart of my salvation. And when my heart is fully convinced, I am able to walk in the Spirit. Our security cannot by any means be diminished. We might not feel it. That's not something we feel. It's something that's true. But our assurance is diminished when we are out of fellowship. When you are out of fellowship with the Lord, you are just simply not going to feel saved because you are not experiencing the riches of glory that have been available to you. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews gives an excellent example of this in chapter 4. He talks about the Israelites who camped out in Kadesh Barnea and refused to go into the land because they were afraid that God would not be with them. They didn't go in despite the fact that God had already granted them the land. He said it was theirs. It belonged to them. He gave them a covenant that is not conditional, an unconditional covenant, and said it belongs to you. Go in and enjoy it. He has done the same thing for us in our salvation. This fellowship belongs to you. Come in and enjoy it. The Israelites feared. Because of their flesh, they thought their flesh would not be able to overcome what was in the land of Israel, and that was true. But God was, and God went before them. And in our security, sometimes we think we are not able to secure our salvation by our obedience. Well, good. Because if that were the test of your security, no one would ever be secure. So let your assurance shift from simply your obedience to knowledge of who he is, knowledge of his security, and let your obedience add to that assurance and not be the basis of it. We want knowledge that leads to assurance, and obedience is not the only way to get there, though obedience is a wonderful warmth to the heart. And it is something that builds up rewards for us in heaven, and it is something that glorifies God. But when obedience fails, the chain does not break. 
we still have knowledge in the Lord. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Our obedience is proof that we have that security. It adds to our assurance. He who does not love abides in death. 1 John 3.7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. We cannot do these acts of righteousness without his imputed righteousness. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Why is obedience so important to our assurance and why does it add so much to our assurance? Because it is undeniable proof. Because we simply cannot do the will of God outside of fellowship with God and we cannot have fellowship with him outside of being securely held by his son. But ultimately, we need to rely on God and God's word. In whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The Greek here is actually, I think, a little clearer, though a little clunkier, translated as that if ever our heart condemns us. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him that if ever our heart condemns us, that God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If ever our obedience falters. If ever we question our motives, and honestly question our motives, we need to know that our security and our assurance even does not rely on our obedience, but it is added to by our obedience. The heart is ultimately going to lie to you. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Even if we are obedient to him, our heart may not understand that as obedience because our heart may be depending still on the flesh to assess things. The heart is not a perfect calibration tool. Does anyone know what this is? Feel free to raise your hand if you think you know what it is. I have five or six hands. This is a tuning fork. It is a calibration instrument. I can't play a single instrument, but if I tried to tune a guitar and I didn't have one of these, I guarantee you it would sound way off key. Does anyone know what these are? Yeah, these are standard grams. These give us standard weight measurements, a standard which we can measure up against. In fact, our whole world is based off of measuring up to standards. We measure standards of dimensions like weight and length, of pressure, of flow, humidity, electricity, temperature. And what is it all measured against? We have to have one firm standard. In fact, they've got them under lock and key over in Europe. I think somewhere in France, they've got these standard meters and standard grams they're under double glass cages so that no one tampers with them. So that heat doesn't 
fluctuate the length or the weight or the density. We need something that can stand up against the pressures of life to be our standard. We need a spiritual standard for calibrating our confidence before the Lord. And the heart, unfortunately, is a feckless, fickle, false friend. It will let you down at all points. Yes, I did purposefully make those all Fs. God is greater than our heart. We need to understand this. The way we feel, the emotions that grab control of us, are not our measure of truth. Unfortunately, this is what most of us hold on to. This is what we spend most of our time thinking about, working through our emotions, trying to understand our emotions and what they tell us about ourselves. What they should tell you about yourself is that your heart's a liar. Your heart will tell you that some of the best things are the worst, and it will tell you that some of the worst things are the best. God's word, unlike the heart, is a true and trustworthy teacher. It should teach you how your heart should feel. And as you grow in your knowledge of who he is, and as you understand who he is, yes, I did choose T's for this one too. As you know who he is, just as a child comes to know his father, then you understand his heart. You understand who you've been made in conformity to. And that tells you who you are, who you are in him. Romans 8, 1 through 2 tells us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If our heart ever tries to condemn us and tell us that we shouldn't have security, we should go right to Romans 8 and see what fixed Paul's problem of not having assurance. He was assured by the Spirit. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. This is his perfect standard. Because God knows all things. Your heart does not. We have a teacher who can teach us all things, but how does he do that? He doesn't use our emotions to teach us new things. There's a lot of mystical groups in Christianity who will say that the Spirit is just a mystical teacher who's going to make their emotions or their thoughts or their feelings or whatever fleeting idea comes into their mind that that is the truth. The Spirit teaches us the depths of Scripture. If we don't have Scripture, if we don't have His Word, we don't have knowledge of our security in Him. And we need that. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when you're tempted to say, I'm not sure I can do this with a clear conscience. I'm not sure I can do this without any self-motivation in it. Give that to the Lord and tell him, I believe this is what you are calling me to do, and I'm worried that I'm seeking the glory in it. So Lord, I'm going to be obedient to do this, and let yourself be glorified and not me in it.
Be honest with him about your concern and then give it to him. He is ultimately the perfect judge and we are not. So before we go on judging ourselves so that we don't do his will because we're worried about doing it the right way, first be willing to be obedient to his will and let him work out in you whether or not that is the proper motive. 1 John 2.27, As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Well, 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us a good example of this also. He's just gone through telling the Corinthians to stop idolizing him or idolizing Apollos and that they need to understand their spiritual growth and future rewards, that they need to understand the judgment to come and to judge properly. So in 1 Corinthians 4.1, he gives an example. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or obedient. A servant that is trustworthy is obedient to his master. 1 Corinthians 4.3 But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. They're testing Paul's motives. Or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. This trips us up sometimes, right? Because we are supposed to examine ourselves. But we're not supposed to examine ourselves and harp on it and harp on it and harp on it. We're supposed to examine ourselves and give it to the Lord. Let him judge it. Let him deal with it. Let him cleanse it. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. And that's the key. When judging motives, if we are conscious of a bad motive, turn it over to the Lord. If you are then not conscious of a bad motive, but you are worried that there may be an underlying motive, know that when you confessed that conscious false motive to him, that he cleansed you not just of that sin, but of all unknown sins as well. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden or the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of man's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. We have a terrible habit of not only judging ourselves, but judging others, not on his perfect standard, but on our hearts, on our emotions. I feel that that's wrong. I don't have any reason to believe that from scripture, but I feel that's wrong. Usually that's just, I don't like that. That's not pleasing to my flesh. But that doesn't mean it's not pleasing to the Lord. And in fact, many things that are pleasing to the flesh are not pleasing to the Lord. The heart is not a good meter. We need to know from his scripture and be assured in our heart by the meter of his word. But interestingly here, and because obedience is part of this factor, and because we know that being obedient means we must be secure in him. 
He tells us, beloved, if our hearts or our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, I think he specifically pulled out this word, beloved. He's been dealing with the topic of love, and he wants to remind us that we have been loved and are loved by Christ. That all of this ability to obey is based on our being in fellowship with him. We are the beloved of the Savior. His agape has come towards us, his self-sacrificing love. And we can have confidence before him. Once again, this is a third-class conditional. That means that this may or may not be true. Importantly here, it may be true that our heart does not condemn us. And why would our heart not condemn us? We may understand his word well. We may have confessed all known sin to him. And we may have been obedient to what he has told us to do. We should have confidence from those things. And if scripture has informed our hearts, if our hearts have been tuned and calibrated to scripture, those things should naturally give us confidence and we should learn to have confidence in those things. And so if our heart does not condemn us, if our conscience is not racked, if there is not known sin that needs confessing to bring us back into fellowship, we should stand before him confidently because we've made, been made perfect in him. 1 John 2.28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We are told to abide in him, to remain in fellowship with him, and this will give us confidence. Our assurance is present while we are in fellowship with him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, do you remember what perfected love is? It's love that reaches its end goal. It's love that comes full circle. You see, I've heard it said that love is not love which is received, but that which is given. Many of us, I think, read these passages about love and interpret this as, I guess I've never been loved by another person. Most of us look at this and see disappointment in other people for not having loved us with agape love. But that's the wrong question. Have we loved others with agape love because we have the perfect confidence in Christ's love towards us? There's two concepts here. There's personal love and impersonal love. Our personal love, meaning coming from a deep knowledge, is between us and God. That is the love that stabilizes. That is the love that we depend on as our source. That fills us completely. Impersonal love is what we are able to produce through his love towards other people because we don't need to know those people intimately in order to love them. We don't need those people to be lovable people. In fact, when God loved us, we were unlovable people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we shouldn't be looking to our relationships with other people as our source of love, but to God. And when that love is perfected, that means it's working its way out through us towards others. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. So, so far, 
John has given us two different verses on confidence in the day of judgment. But he's bringing this ever closer to home. Because yes, as we keep our eyes on the coming of the Lord Jesus, we are purified. But this confidence isn't just something future. This confidence is something present. This confidence is something we should have today. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And this is an amazing truth, isn't it? We have a God that listens. And when we're in fellowship with him, he is standing there listening to our every need. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, just or Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. He has taken care of the sin issue that was a barrier between us and God. He has reconciled us. He has turned his face back towards us so that we could be saved, so that we could be drawn into fellowship with him, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We spiral out of control in times of need when we do not understand that God is there, when we do not understand what scripture teaches about our security, and we try to find it ourselves. Well, the moment we try to gain assurance by being obedient is the moment we step out of walking in the spirit and start walking in the flesh. We need to understand as our basis what he has said on our account, what he has done on our account, so that we can have courage in our prayers, so that we can have courage standing before him today in the throne room of God. Now, most people read this verse and they might just scoff and say, yeah, right. I haven't experienced that. Well, experience is never a good test of truth. But we also want to see what does he actually say about this? Whatever we ask, we receive from him. It would be easy to grab this out of context and just say that this is a standard principle. Once we're believers, anything that we can ever dream of that we ask God, he's just going to give it to us because we're Christians. Well, a Christian who is out of fellowship is not going to be getting the things that he's asking for because he's not going to be asking in the will of God. A child might go to his parent and ask for ice cream and candy and treats for dinner. The parent's going to say no. It's not healthy for the kid. But if the kid, like the parent, is seeking health, if the kid seeks the will of the parent, then he might ask his parent for healthy food, and they'll give it to him. Might say, Mom, I don't like Brussels sprouts. Can you give me broccoli instead? That's probably going to get a yes. But Mom, I don't like Brussels sprouts. Will you give me Jolly Ranchers instead? Yeah, that's not going to fly. And we're like this, aren't we? God, I've decided what I need, and I've decided you need to give it to me. I'm praying now. I'm asking for it. I expect you to give it to me. This is how we approach him. Sometimes it's, I've done my due diligence of reading your word. Now give me what I'm asking for. This is not going to work. This is not being in the will of God. 
When our heart is conformed to his will, we are going to be asking the things that are in his will. When our hearts so understand him that we breathe, eat, and think scripture, then we are going to naturally be praying for the things that are in his will. We are going to be enjoying, longing for, and looking for those things. Just like when we come to know someone that we love so much that we can anticipate their words. We can anticipate their thoughts and their needs because we know them intimately. We know intimately God through his word. And when we know him that intimately, we pray for the things that are pleasing to him. So what is our basis then in prayer, in confident prayer before him? Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, that will I do so that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does this mean in my name? I got berated over the summer by an online commenter who told me that I am a heretic because at the end of my prayers, I did not sign off with in the name of Jesus. It's not a prayer if you don't say in the name of Jesus, because this verse so clearly says that that is the instruction for signing off in a prayer. Well, there aren't any standard words, forms that we have to say in order to have our prayer answered. What he completely missed in the scripture is we need to ask this on the basis of who he is, on the basis of who Christ is and on the power and authority of who he is. We have been granted that ability to stand in the throne room of God in his name. When we stand before God, we don't stand before him in our work and in our power. We stand before him in Christ. And it's because he is fully satisfied in Christ that our prayers are answered, that we have access to the throne room. But when we are not abiding in Christ and we offer prayers that come from our flesh, we're not standing in the throne room. We're standing down here on earth, shaking our fist at God. Be in fellowship with him in your prayers. John 16, 23, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Could he be any clearer that fellowship is an integral part of prayer? Now, confession is a form of prayer that brings us back into fellowship when we are outside of fellowship. But prayer, where we bring petitions before him, we are not going to be praying for his will if we are acting against his will. We want to be acting in his will while we pray. We want our prayers to be an act of his will. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Now look at that that flows naturally from prayer, is bearing fruit. It's not bearing the things that the world produces, but it's bearing the things that only God could produce. What are we asking him for? We're asking him for things that glorify him.
we're asking for things that are going to serve others. The fruit of the Spirit, though we're made joyful by it, are really things that if you look at it, they are object-focused. They are focused towards someone else. We pray for the ability to be obedient. We pray for the ability to know and understand His will so that we can do it, and we pray for the power to do it. We pray that we might actually be able to experience walking with Him, doing the things that are pleasing to Him, and so prove to be His disciples. Not saved believers, disciples. Ones who follow Him. Ones who spend their time with Him. Ones that sacrifice anything for Him. Ones that learn from Him. Those most intimate with Him. There are bad motives in prayer. 1 Peter 3.7 gives a good example. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Interesting, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Well, we're told elsewhere, Ephesians 5, how a husband ought to be towards his wife. Loving, self-sacrificial. Well, if he's not doing that, if he's treating her then less than himself, especially here in terms of her salvation, treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's a child of God just like he is. He ought to treat her like that. And how are we commanded to treat our brothers in Christ, our sisters in Christ, with self-sacrificial love? So if he is standing outside the will of God in his marriage, and he's offering prayers to God, these prayers are not going to be in God's will. Unless it's, Lord, help me get back in your will. Lord, I confess my sins. I confess that this is standing between me and fellowship with you. I agree with you that this is hindering my walk. Please cleanse me of it. James 4 is an excellent example of bad motives in prayer and the reason why our prayers don't get answered sometimes. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? In other words, what is the reason that you are not walking in love with one another? What is the reason that you are not being obedient to the will of God the Father, that you be united in love? The reason is your pleasures that are waging war. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Do you really think that in the uh, congregation that James is writing to, that they're not asking for things? That they're not praying to God to give them things? But still he says you do not have because you do not ask. Well, a prayer asked outside of fellowship is just as good as no prayer asked at all. A prayer that is not asked in the will of God, that contradicts the will of God, it may as well never have been uttered because it will not be answered. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now that's interesting, and let's bring it full circle. 
In 1 John 3.17, we were told about our commandment to love. Then in 3.19 through 20, we're told about having confidence before him, especially having confidence when our motives are questionable. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him that if ever our heart condemns us, that God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So when we're asking with wrong motives, how do we fix that problem? We confess that to him. It's that simple. We don't have to stop praying and be penitent, and then maybe we can come back later after we've felt sufficiently bad about ourselves. No, immediately, while you're in your prayers, and you feel that your motives are wrong, tell him, I'm not sure I'm praying for this for the right motive. Lord, change my heart. Help me to understand who you are. Help me to understand your will and change my desires. Change the way I'm looking at this. Calibrate me to you. We know absolutely for certain that these kind of prayers are answered because this is the will of God that we be in fellowship with him. This is the will of God that we be obedient. This is the will of God that we walk in the works that he's prepared for us ahead of time. And we know that if we confess our sins, that he is able to cleanse us and that he will. 1 John 2.1, my little children, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father and having the wrong motives is a sin. Standing before him with a will different than his is a sin. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He paid the price. He paid the penalty. When we choose to step outside of fellowship, he paid the price to bring us back in. When we were lost before we were saved, he paid the price to bring us in for the first time and secure us in the Father. Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. There is no person whose justification has not been paid for by the cross. But also there is no sin of the believer that has not been paid for on the cross. There is no sin too big to keep you out of fellowship with God. He is ready and willing to have fellowship with you. He is desiring that fellowship with you. 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, that's a conditional, remember? It requires an act of volition, either positive or negative. We can choose not to agree with him. No, Lord, that's not a sin. Well, our prayers are not going to be very successful here. No, God, this is your will. Trust me. That's a weird one, huh? If we confess our sins, we know for certain that he is faithful. He is not going to let us down. And also he is righteous. This means that these sins that he forgives, he has every ability to forgive. He's not winking at sin. He's not just hiding it under the table. He has taken care of it already. He is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins. And we can only confess the sins that we know about can't confess something. We can't agree with him about something we don't know. But not only that, he is going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we grow in him and as we understand who we are, as we understand his standard of righteousness, 
some of our sinful behaviors will become more apparent. They'll become clearer. We'll recognize even these mental attitude sins as sins, and we'll be able to confess those before him. And we'll be able to have more confidence in our fellowship with him. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. This is fellowship with God. We look back and even David enjoyed his fellowship with God, trusting in him and seeking God's will and God's desires. And here obedience comes back into the fold. That's one reason why it's so hard to outline the book of John, because he doesn't just move from one topic to the next. He constantly grabs those topics that he's already gone over and he shoves them right back into the text. It's a, a woven tapestry more than a detailed outline or argument like Paul's books. But here he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. And then he gives us the cause of this, the basis, because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Reason number one, then, is our useful service. Our prayers are going to be answered because we're praying to be useful. I'm going to take the second clause first. Do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Well, we have a pattern and an example for this in Christ. Christ said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative. This was a euphemism for the crucifixion. When he goes to the cross, we can know for certain that he is not acting on his own initiative. He is acting in obedience. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus was well-pleasing to the Lord. He went to the cross in obedience to God. He is our example of being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the will of God. Philippians has a, another great example here of doing the things that are pleasing to God. And Paul wraps it in with prayer. In Philippians 4, he's talking to these Philippians about a little conflict that's happened between two women in the church. And he's telling everyone that they need to surround these women and help them seek unity. And they seek unity by having the same mind of Christ. Naturally, if we are all seeking towards that same goal of Christ and not our own self-wills, we're going to be in unity with one another. And so he moves on and says, be anxious for nothing then. Remember, these conflicts were rising up because people are seeking their own pleasures. They're seeking their own will. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Talk to him about it. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He goes on to give them two commandments. One about the way they should think and the other about the way they should act. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. 
if there is any excellence and if anything is worthy of praise. Dwell on these things. Think about these things. Let your mind be filled with these things that God sees as righteous. How do we know what God sees as righteous? We read his word and we come to know him. And it's only after we've got the right mindset about this that Paul says to do something. He says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Things we have learned, where do we learn them from? Scripture, teaching on Scripture. Things you have received and heard and seen in me, they've received it from Paul in his ministry to them. Practice these things. Do these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Well, once again, he's given them rather a tall order. He's going to give them an example of this. And this, I think, is just fantastic, what Paul does here. All through the book of Philippians, he's talking about joy in commandments. Be joyful. Have this joy about you. Now he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He's put this in the past. He's giving us an example of when he did this and how he did this. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. The Philippians are praying for Paul. And the Philippians are loving Paul not just in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And we'll see that. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They were praying for him before, but they lacked the opportunity to actually do anything about it. Now that I speak from, or not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I have. Paul is thanking them for a gift that they have given him. And some people call this Paul's thankless thanks. Because it boils down to, thank you so much for your gift. I didn't need it. It was over and above. It was extra. It was beyond. Because I was fully satisfied in Christ. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And what was that secret? That I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There are two phrases in that sentence. It does not end with, I can do all things. I can do all things because he is the power behind it. I can survive this situation. I can thrive in this situation that others would barely survive. Because it's not the power of my flesh that's doing this, it's his. It's the power of his spirit. And so he says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. It was good that they were obedient to God when God led their hearts to send Paul Actually, we don't even know what they sent him. Could have been money. It could have been provisions. They sent him something. He says, this was good. Not that I seek a gift itself. It wasn't good because he needed something and God supplied it through them. It wasn't good because he got something out of it. But I seek for the profit which increases to your account. They were faithful to what God had told them to do. And it wasn't about the money changing hands. It wasn't about the bios, the things of life, changing hands. It wasn't about the thing, the material sacrificed. It was about the sacrifice. 
It was about being obedient to God. It was about loving your brother through the love of Christ. And so he says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. Paul was in prison at this time. Paul had nothing. And he said he had already received everything in full, but when he received a gift from them, he received it in abundance beyond what he needed because he knew the secret to surviving in any circumstance, good or bad, nothing and in excess. He says, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Notice who it's pleasing to. Paul doesn't say that what you gave me was just enough to sustain me for this time, so thank you, it was good. He doesn't even concern himself here. The gift has nothing to do with him, nothing to do with it filling his needs. It was an act of worship, and it was an act well-pleasing to the Lord. It was a sacrifice not to Paul, but to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God's looking after Paul. God's looking after the Philippians. And the way he does this is in excess to their need because they're fully satisfied in Christ. They're able to share self-sacrificially because they're fully satisfied in Christ. Moving back to the first clause, we keep his commandments. Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. We are obedient. This commandments is in the plural. In fact, it's the only time here that it's in the plural. And he is going to give us two different commandments. The reason number two is that we are obedient servants. Not only are we useful, we're obedient. 1 John 3.23, he gives us the content of those commandments. Number one, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And number two, that we love one another, just as he has commanded us. So the first commandment is faith in Jesus. This is simple enough, right? John 6, 27 says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In fact, this is the only commandment given to an unbeliever. We can get pretty frustrated with unbelievers not acting like Christians. But we have this commandment and many more on us. They have only this. And until they have been obedient to this commandment, they cannot be obedient to any other. But this commandment continues for us. This is the continued work of God in us. This is the very foundation this is the foundation of our fellowship, so it's the foundation of our ability to do the will of God. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Romans 5, 1 through 2, we see that it's not just an introduction by faith but it's a life of faith. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, perfect tense means a completed action in the past with effects continuing into the present. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, present, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace into which we stand. Our initial faith is it just the tip of the iceberg. This is a life of faith, a life of fellowship. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Hope naturally looks forward. We look forward to what we are going to be in him. And so our second commandment then is love one another. This is specifically love for the brothers. Paul and the Philippians in their intimate friendship, their intimate love between one another. God used that. John 13, 34, Jesus gave them this command for the first time, not just that they love their neighbors as themselves, but that they love one another, even as Christ has loved them, even giving his life for them. Galatians 5, 1 tells us that it was for freedom that Christ set us free, for the liberty in the life of the believer. Therefore, keep standing firm. He set us free to be free. So continue by the same means which you were freed. And how were you freed? By faith alone, in grace, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone. We continue on that. We continue to stand on grace and we continue in that same faith which saved us. Galatians 5.5 5. For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. How many of our prayers are focused on getting the things that we need? Let's be more like the Philippians who concerned themselves with Paul's needs and Paul who concerned himself with their needs. This is the work of the Lord then that we are loving one another. And this is not a love which we produce in our flesh, but a love which comes through us, fruit born through the Spirit, to give to others. Yes, if you have a need, tell the Lord. But pray that he might use someone else to deliver that so that the glory does not come to you and so that the glory doesn't come to them, but so that you can see God working through the believers, that we can know that we are disciples of him because we see the fruit. Pray that you might be useful to God in serving someone else. God's going to answer these prayers. 1 John 2.10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. When our love is focused outwards towards others, we are walking with him in the light. So as we wrap up chapter 3, John's first big uh, movement in the book of 1 John we want to look at these topics that he highlights. 
that came through the first three chapters and that he's going to focus on now in the last two chapters. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know this. By now especially, through 1 John 3, we know that if we are obedient to him, we must be in fellowship with him because we cannot be obedient outside of fellowship. 1 John 17, 20 talks about Christ's purpose then for us in bringing us into fellowship. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Not just for these 12 disciples or 11 disciples here, but for everyone whom they are going to reach with the message of the gospel, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus wants unity and fellowship in the body. He wants us to self-sacrificially love one another, not from our flesh, but through his spirit, praying for one another. And when the Lord moves, move with him. Let him use you. 1 John 1.3 parallels perfectly with Christ's high priestly prayer. John probably grabs these words right from it. Just as Jesus prayed, for unity, not just among the apostles, but those who would be saved through the words of the apostles. So John, when he sets out to write the book of 1 John, says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is what Jesus was seeking too. Not just to get us saved to heaven, but so that we can enjoy the abundant life in fellowship with him in servitude and in liberty. First or John 17, 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So he says, we know by this then that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We have that full unity then. Christ in the Father, the Father in Christ, Christ in the Spirit, the Spirit in Christ, and us in the Spirit, the Spirit in us, Christ in us, and us in Christ. It's an amazing unity that we have with God. Something that could only be because Christ died and reconciled us to God. And in John 14, 16, at the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, when Christ is telling his disciples, that he is about to leave. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Interesting, right? Jesus praying on our behalf that we be fully satisfied with another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And in that day, speaking of the coming of the day of the Spirit, the day of Pentecost, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The day of Pentecost, these disciples knew since the word of Christ had been fulfilled 
that this unity, this fellowship had been made perfect, that they were in the spirit and in Christ and that their fellowship, though Christ was gone, was ever as present and ever as real as it had been. John 14, 21 then, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The main idea this morning, despite the human propensity to fall short of the summons of godly love, there can be comfort and confidence in the knowledge of God through faith in Christ and love for one another. Such assurance facilitated by divine commandments that make abiding in Christ possible is enabled by God's spirit. Let's pray.